Hi, this is Brian Roten with Hotel News Now. I'm here with Mike Carruth, a partner with the law firm Fisher & Phillips. He is based in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, a recent decision from the National Labor Relations Board that uh, is kind of a pretty big impact on how uh, union elections uh, may work. So, uh, Mike, Thanks very much for uh, for joining us today and, and uh, helping explain what exactly this decision means for uh, our hospitality listeners. Uh, thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. So, uh, can you kind of give us uh, just a, a brief overview of what uh, the uh, the National Labor Relations Board decision means uh, with their latest decision on uh, employers dealing with uh, union elections or, or trying to set up union elections and where that fits into the, the the greater context of what we've been seeing with employers and unionization efforts. Right. Yeah, Brian, let me uh, let me put it in the context of the way I've been talking to clients about it. It's not just the one decision that was mm -hmm. issued last Friday that had some significant revisions to how important issues in the area of labor law union representation process are handled. But there's a whole series of things here, and it's very, very important, whether you're an employer in the hospitality industry or any industry in our country, to understand that this is not just look at one decision and say, oh, what does this mean? There's a comprehensive approach here, and I'll try to summarize that and, and put it in a framework uh, within the context of our podcast here without going on too long. But uh, there's really multiple steps here. You know, one major thing that has happened, and I'm going to talk about what has happened. The Labor Board has m issued a decision that makes it much more likely that policies that an employer simply maintains in a handbook as in a policy manual, regardless of whether those are enforced or not, and clearly it is irrelevant whether the employer implemented that rule or has that rule to try to uh, restrict protected rights. So if you just got certain rules, if they could be interpreted as infringing upon the rights of employees, that's going that, that's presumed to be unlawful, and you're going to have to prove that it's necessary and there's no easier way to do it. That came before this recent decision, not too long before, but, but that was already in the books. And then the last week, before the decision came out that changed how employees can end up with a union, the Labor Board issued a, a final rule for expedited election rules. So those of the folks in here that are uh, in the area of employee relations and dealing with uh, issues of unionization and unionization attempts, they will recall back in 2014, the Labor Board implemented the expedited election rules. Everybody called them the quickie election rules, ambush election rules, if you, if you want to cast them in a more negative light. And the whole premise there was is that the process needed to be sped up and probably before those expedited rules were implemented in 2014, the time from a union filing a petition and a vote, I, I will say in my personal experience was about 40 days. 
The expedited rules dropped those down to about 20 or 21. Then in 2019, the labor board that was assembled under the Trump administration uh, did away with those expedited quickie election rules and elections probably since 2019 have been uh, being conducted anywhere from 30 to 40 days. But in that period, as we all <clears throat> remember, we had the pandemic. So there were a lot of mail ballot elections too. So the, the time frame was a little skewed because everybody was using mail ballots. So that occurred too. So you had a situation where just having a policy that's overly broad is going to be an unfair labor practice. You now have expedited election rules. And at the end of last week is when the labor board came out with uh, the decision that basically changed the big part of that decision is going to be how they evaluate situations where a bargaining order could be issued. Before that decision came out, everybody had probably heard, your listeners may have heard about the Joy Silk Doctrine. The Joy Silk Doctrine um, was based on a case that came out in 1949. And the whole premise there was that if a union presented an employer with evidence of majority support, usually cards, and the employer rejected a demand, but did not have a good faith basis for doing that, the employer would be guilty of an 8A5, a refusal to bargain. You didn't have to do or say anything that infringed employee rights. You just had to reject the union's demand to be recognized without a good basis, and you could end up with a bargaining order. Well, there were a whole line of cases between 1949 and basically 1969 where that just got way out of control. So that was eliminated and then a case came out lyndon lumber that basically just said and this has been the law of my entire career uh is that if a union pre presents majority support uh, or a claim of majority support to an employer and demands recognition the employer has a legal right to say we we doubt that all those cards all that information on a petition was gathered without undue coercion or influence. So we're going to say no to your demand and we're going to require you to go file a petition. Didn't have to have the employer, didn't have to have any evidence of that. Um, they just had to, they could lawfully just say, thank you, but no, thank you. You go file a petition for an election. And that's what one of the points that was changed last week. But the other point was the bargaining order. And for years, <clears throat> the standard for a bargaining order involved the labor board looking to determine if certain severe or hallmark unfair labor practices occurred, like telling people the facility, the operations would close if a union came in, openly firing known union proponents in front of everybody so that that was known. Those are the type of hallmark. If those occurred, the analysis was, were those so bad that a fair election could not be held in the future? Uh, so it was, you were looking forward. What the Laird Board said last week was, the new standard for bargaining orders is, is we're just going to look to see where, whether the unfair labor practice uh, was sufficient to order a bargaining order remedy. We're not worrying about whether 
a fair election could be held in the future. We're trying to determine and will be determining going forward whether there is an unfair labor practice or labor practices that are sufficiently severe to allow us to order the company to bargain with the union now. We're, we're not worried about a future election. So they they shifted the focus. And that's kind of the big, that's really the big part. So that's a big summary there. Brown, if you have any questions based on that or want me to break down any particular part. Yeah, uh, so what do they consider at this point then to be enough of a violation where they would come in and say, okay, you're, you're, you're just going to direct, uh, directly bargain with them now. Okay, no election I, needed. Yeah, very good. And you, you'll see a lot of comments out there in the media, people saying a one unfair labor practice will get you a bargaining order. Well, I, I, well that can, but, it, you know, it, you know, in, in fairness to the decision, that that issue was raised by the dissent and, and, and the, the, the majority who wrote the opinion, you know, they address that. And, and here here's the issue. So one unfair labor practice could get you a bargaining order. But I think that that would have to be an unfair labor practice that affects a wide range. So if you have 600 people in your plant or in your hotel and you have all of the back of the house people come together for uh, a meeting and that's 250 people out of 600 people over the whole property <clears throat> and you say something that is very legal if you make a threat or if you uh, promise a benefit to those 250 back of house people uh, that may be one ULP all those people, I think that could be enough to get you a bargaining order. Whereas if you have a supervisor over people who are working in a kitchen and there's one kitchen staff person talking to the supervisor uh, over that crew and they have a conversation and an alleged ULP occurs there, that one ULP I do not think will get you a bargaining order because it has to be the labor board spent a lot of time talking about it. it has to be sufficiently disseminated. It has to be known around the facility. It has to be something that is very likely that people heard and were impacted by um, is significant. So you, you'll, you'll so it's a again, it's a very serious decision. The landscape has changed. It is going to be much easier for an employer to end up with having to recognize a union than before. The results of secret ballot elections are going to be much more easy to disregard and a bargaining order issued. However, I mean, just telling employers, telling people in the hospitality industry that one single ULP will get you a uh, bargaining order, it could, but it's going to have to be a really bad, significant ULP in my mind, just to be fair. And So let's say I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, I run a, a management company or I am an owner operator and I'm a franchisee. With the, the, the decision now, what am I going to have to be more mindful of? What do I have to be, you know, careful about doing or not doing? What do I have to, you know, completely avoid doing if I have an employee or employees who come to me and say, 
we have, you know, sufficient interest among this group or, or, or you know, among all the employees here to unionize, you know, here's the, here's the notice. What do I have to be careful of now to make sure that I'm, I'm not violating, you know, the, the, the law here? Well, uh, the, the, the statute, the National Labor Relations Act, protects employers and their ability to oppose unionization and ex explain their opposition and to explain to people what their rights are and why they may be better off without a union, what they've already achieved. Without you, you can always do that. So the things, it's very uh, consistent and common throughout all of the area of labor law. You, you don't inter interrogate, you don't threaten, you don't make promises, you don't spy on people. So, so, so th that's the basic answer to your question, but there's so many different ways that uh, a ULP can be alleged. So I just think with this new standard, employers just need to be much more cognizant that they're going to be having to make a communication. So they need to either with their internal HR professionals or outside counsel, they need to make sure what they're saying is uh, legally sufficient and proper under the National Labor Relations Act. And they're going to need to decide. Here, here's an important thing, Brian. And they're going to need to decide if they want to consider future potential issues that are not necessarily precluded now. For example, one of the things everybody thought was going to happen with this case that just came out was that the labor board was going to say that mandatory meetings, captive audience meetings, were going to be unlawful. That simply just having those and requiring people to sit in a meeting where you express your position on unions, even if it's lawful uh, explanation of your position, is going to be an unfair labor. They did not do that. However, that's been a potential issue since the general counsel at the labor board raised that in August of 2020. So clients that I deal with have been already adding a disclaimer, a notice in any and all meetings that the meeting is voluntary, that you do not have to attend, uh, that no one will be rewarded for attending, no one will be uh, punished for not attending. So we're trying to take that off the table, even though that was not the law. We were just trying to make sure that was not an issue because I, I personally do not think that's a significant problem if you have consistent and good communications all the time and people respect and appreciate your information starting off a meeting where you talk about unions and you give that disclaimer is not going to result in 99 percent of the people getting up and walking away and again that's important because the decision we're talking about where there's a new standard for bargaining order applies retroactively so I hear it all the time, but Mike, the law right now, we don't have to give this disclaimer. We can require people to come to a meeting if we want to, because that is the law. That is the law. But if it changes, just like it did with the case last week, they made that retroactive. <laughs> so the union, will, the, the unions have been filing charges on the theories that were articulated by the general counsel back in August of 2020 even though those weren't the law. And that's exactly why this whole CMEX case and the issues there 
came up because they've been trying to get the law changed by alleging these unfair labor practices, even though the law doesn't support that. So, you know, for you know, management companies in particular, you know, you have the whole corporate structure, you have executives who are working with, you know, either their own general counsel or outside counsel who's able to explain all this to them so they can be right on top of things. Talk to me about the necessity and uh, just general guidelines to communicate all of this information then down to the management at the property levels, because even if people at the corporate level get it, if you know your, your, your general manager or assistant general manager or whoever is in any kind of management position down there, you want to make sure everybody's on the same page then so you're not running into trouble even if you know corporate gets it property level may not be aware of what's going on right well you're going to practical training on what is legally necessary and what is uh practical practically important is going to be much more what's always been important because you want to avoid unfair labor practices, but now because there there's going to be a, a heightened risk that if you engage or you have several managers engage in unfair labor practices, that the, the remedy is not going to be well. We're going to have to rerun this election that we just won. It's going to be you have the you might have to train people very very well, and it's going to it's going to make it tough for frontline management, people interacting with the team members on a daily basis, because having done it for decades, you know, uh, a lot of people just say, well, I don't want to be the one that violates the law. I don't want to break through. I don't want what I do or what I say uh, to trigger some huge exposure. And we end up getting a union forced on us because of what I say. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't think it, again, these ULPs are going to have to be disseminated to large groups, I think, before you get to that risk. But you don't want 10 or 15 managers, frontline supervisors, willy-nilly going out there saying things. So I think you just want to train them on, on what, what you need for them to do. And you want to explain to them the areas that are problematic, give them very practical guidance when, when an employee comes up and says, Hey, I just want to let you know that there is union activity here. I mean, that's an that's an important uh, interaction right there. That means that employee trusts that supervisor, that manager, uh, to tell them that. And that supervisor manager, the most important training they can get to know is they need to let the company know because having the ability to decide whether to address this early is the is now the most critical thing. So a supervisor manager needs to know what to do and what to say when somebody says, uh, I just wanna let you know that we do have union activity uh, and some people are trying to talk to me. Now that's that employee's right to do that. We can't interrogate them, we can't make them say that, but if they come up to somebody, that's usually because they are hearing a lot of stuff that they probably have questions about. So they really, are looking for a source to balance against what they've been told. So that's one. And then the next question, once the supervisor answers that question, they're going to say, well, what do you think about having a union here? They need to, if it is a true question from a sincere employee, be able to lawfully answer that in their own 
uh, words and in their from their own perspective. So that, that's the kind of training that I think supervising managers need to have. And they need to be comfortable with that. Um, and and, em, and employers need to make sure that when all that information like that comes in, that they take steps. Because here's the key. All these things we're talking about with this most recent decision, uh, the labor board ordering a bargaining order, the union making a demand for recognition, all that is premised upon the union actually getting a majority of the employees in the targeted unit to sign cards. And, and obviously, the employees have a legal right to sign those cards. Uh, the union has a legal right within the, the, the restrictions and the areas allowed by the law to request those to be signed. So we're not going to unlawfully interfere with that. No employer will. But if the the union only needs 30 percent of the targeted workforce to file a petition, that's all they need if they want to ensure a secret ballot vote. They don't need a majority. The majority only gives them these options and leverage to try to get in regardless of the vote. So employers need to have lawful and appropriate education on what people need to know about cards, signing cards, and their ability to revoke a card. Uh, and they need to understand if they're being told information that is inaccurate, if, if misrepresentations are being made to get them to sign a card. That is something that employees need to know shouldn't occur. And if it is, they ought to, they have a legal right to report it if they want to. So that, that's a big part is making sure if you ignore the issue of union organizing activity um, and a union can work, which they will uh, covertly to develop support, gather uh, cards or names on a petition without any uh, opportunity for employees to hear the side of the story that they're uh, not getting, th th then you're going to have, every union is going to have a majority of people signed up on cards and all these things that we're talking about from this new decision will be on the table. All right, Mike. Well, that's uh, that's about the time we have today, but I uh, want to thank you again for, uh, for speaking with us and helping explain and, and, and break down this uh, latest decision. Very good. Well, Brian, I appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed it. I hope you have a great day and a wonderful weekend. Hi, I'm Isaac Colazzo, Vice President of Analytics at STR. Hi, and I'm Jan Feitak, National Director for Hospitality Analytics for the Coastal Group. Tune in to our new show, Tell Me More, a hospitality data podcast. It's a podcast on the global hotel industry, its current trends, what we're thinking about, and where the industry's going. And we like to have fun with the data, too. Find us on hotelnewsnow.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today.